Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The arts helped move us to a better place. Life inspires music and music inspires life. It's a great relationship there. I'm Jim Hankey, and this is part two of WBBM anchor Rob Hart's conversation with Terry Hemmert, celebrating her 50th anniversary recently with our neighbors upstairs at WXRT. If you missed part one, go back and find it in your podcast feed to learn about Terry's original interest in radio and some of her earliest days with 93XRT. But otherwise, let's get looped in, Chicago. As the mid-70s rolled over into the late 70s and all of these underground FM stations from coast to coast all became money machines. They found out there was a very you know sellable audience and a lot of the very kind of laid-back progressive stations, all of a sudden became very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about The Loop. Uh, going from Cat Stevens on day one to aggressive black T-shirts for blowing up records. How did XRT avoid all of that? How did it kind of maintain its identity, even as a lot of other album rockers became very aggressive and, and very commercial? We were, all of us, music maniacs, and we had such a deep respect for music. That's the reason we were there. We loved radio, but as you asked earlier, what comes first, the cart or the horse? And for us, it was music. It was always about the music. And we struggled for a long time to get any traction. We had to keep adding, and finally we were on 24 hours a day, but we didn't have a great signal uh, there wasn't a promotions budget. You know, it was kind of like we were clear out of Belmont and Cicero. I think a lot of people in the media, they just thought we were some little podunk thing. And we thought we had something special, and we we did. And and I think that's why, one of the reasons why our air staff is really close. You know, a lot of radio stations, the air staff, they're not buddies. They're competing with each other, you know. Or, I'm the star of the station, and you're not, you know, and all that kind of crap. But, you know, we worked with Lynn Bramer for decades, and the guy was a superstar in this town and one of the nicest people you could ever meet in your life. There are no big egos on that air staff. We watch out for each other. We have each other's back. We've been through death and divorces and weddings and babies and stuff. We've, we're family. And I think people used to think, oh, the XRT culture, aren't they special? That's not what it was. It was just real. It's real, and it's still there. I mean, we're always there for each other. And there's never been a sense of battling it out on the air staff. And the other thing that really kind of struck me over the years, too, also as a listener and then someone who went into the business, is the relationship it had with the audience and with Mm -hmm. the community. A relationship with the Cubs long before the company 
reached a business relationship with the Cubs. Sure. Going into the Pride Parade, mm-hmm. uh, supporting small businesses. I mean, I still can tell you about commercials for the Village Cycle Center. Right. Um, and a lot of head shops. Yeah. Too. I mean, yeah. it's it, th- that level of community involvement, right. which seems to only happen organically. Yeah. Well, and I've been public affairs director since I started there because that's something I did in Rochester too. And I actually did at GLD. I, I started that they didn't have public affairs and I started an interview thing, which I didn't get to do the interview, but I produced it and I wrote the guy's questions and he would read them and put a couple vocal pauses in there and make it sound like he was conversational and uh, get public service announcements on the air and stuff. And I did that of course at XRT and have, I still do that. And uh, now that I'm on Facebook a lot, I post this things I write for the PSAs and it's, I get great feedback. People say, I've always wanted to do a volunteer thing and I just didn't know where to start. Great. This sounds exactly like I want, or if that's not exactly what they want three weeks later, I'll have something that's closer to what they're looking for or to support theater. Chicago's theater scene is amazing. And uh, so we support that in the PSAs. AIDS walks. We did those all through the eighties and I'd show up with my schnauzer and we'd walk down the lakefront. And so I, I've always liked that outreach thing and the connection with the community. And I've actually heard from people who had career changes because they moved into not-for-profits that changed their life and they ended up, you know, really on a good path. And a story like that'll keep me going through all the crap you put through (laughs) working. That would keep me going for a couple months, you know, just one of those. So let's talk about the other love of your life, mm-hmm. the Beatles. Uh-huh. Um, for someone who wasn't there, 1964, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, and does not know of the phenomenon firsthand, because it's always been a part of everyone's cultural life. Sure. You know, Kind of describe the evolution of your relationship from watching the Beatles on Sullivan to following you know, their progression as artists through the 60s and then becoming one of the you know, foremost uh, Beatles experts out there. Okay. <laughs> I always dodged that one because I used to go to, it just doesn't happen anymore, thank goodness, but I'd go to parties and some jerk would come up and say, I bet I know something about the Beatles that you don't know. And I said, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> now buzz off, I need a drink, you know? I mean, uh, that's irritating. It's not a competition, really. I was watching that night, questioning it, thinking, there was too much hype for one thing that kind of turned me. I was a sophomore in high school and, uh, and I loved the radio. I, I just, that's, I remember we got our first portable radio so I could unplug it and then plug it in when I was doing the ironing for the family. <laughs> Later then I had a, a porch outside my bedroom that I would sleep on a cot out there all summers on second floor. So no mosquitoes and no muggers. And, uh, and it was pickle. They don't know how to, <laughs> know how to mug. But um, I had one electrical outlet, and I'd plug in my reading light and plug in my radio. And I would, at night, read, you know, all kinds of literature and stuff and listen to what I could get on it on the night signal. Anyway, I was not going to fall for this Beatle thing, but I thought I better watch it because I knew that the next day, and it was, the next day that's all we talked about at school. It was like, it was a big buzz. That's why I'm thinking that's not going to happen again quite like that, where in one day everything, it's, I sit, tell my students it's like Wizard of Oz when it starts out black and white and turns technicolor. <laughs> when the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan, all of a sudden things got colorful because they weren't 
hokey. They weren't the kind of guys that moved their guitars in unison and looked at the camera and, whoa, aren't I cute? You know, they were real. And there's a moment that I wasn't even, it was subliminal. But I, I know this is one of the things that attract me about them. I wasn't sure why, but years later, and I didn't get to see it again for decades because they, there's no reruns. And somebody sent me a VHS when I got my first VHS machine and they had a bootleg of the Ed Sullivan appearances. And there's a moment where John and George, they're saying Paul singing and they make eye contact and they both break into a grin at each other, not at the audience or not like, Hey, I'm grinning now, you know? Or we've rehearsed this, you know, and it was real. And it wasn't real before. There was all show business and everybody had their choreography and stuff. And these guys were out there having the time of their life. I found out later that John Lennon was so nervous he wanted to throw up. And that made me feel good because I thought, okay, it's okay to be nervous. You use that as adrenaline. So even now I get nervous sometimes, you know. I did the commencement speech at Elmhurst a couple years ago. I was a wreck all leading up to it. And then boom, everything Dr. Lowe taught me kicked in, but they had three weeks in a row. They were on the third week, John Lennon, who actually didn't get to do that. He was really did more vocals than anybody else, but I think they were going for Paul because of his looks and his, he's adorable. They let him finally, John sing twist and shout. And that's when I really lost it. Cause I thought, Wow, because I still love the Isley Brothers version, mm-hmm. but that's amazing what they just did with that song. And that's when cover version used to be, uh, it was like a racist thing. It was like some uh, black artist would have a hit. The uh, record companies, the big ones, would bring in Pat Boone or anybody else and cover it because, and they would sell more records because their distribution was better. And when they wanted that song on TV, they'd put the white artist on TV. Right. We can't have uh, Little Richard sing uh, Tutti Fruity. we no. got to get uh, Pat Boone in here. Yeah, who didn't want to sing a wop ba loop ba womp bam boop He thought it was ridiculous. And they said, uh, Pat, that's a song. <laughs> that's the hook. You have to use that. And, uh, and he sings it phonetically. I tell my students, I said, like, when you hear Fats Domino sing, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill, you have a kind of an idea what he's talking about. And Pat sings the same song, and I'm thinking, Pat, tell me what you mean by thrill. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not feeling it, you know. When we return, Terry shares some incredible stories relating to her passion for educating students on the history of black music in America. Much more after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Actually, we have a funny thing I should share this. Uh, At class, um, I've I've been there 48 years. I don't know when to leave. And uh, get the hit. You know, I mean, I'm still showing up here at XRT, like, why don't you go home and retire? No, they've actually been very wonderful, but um, I'm still teaching. And in 81, I went into Al Parker, who was my department head and the the voice of Channel 7. Every time you heard that 
great voice. That was my boss at Columbia College, wonderful man. And I was teaching formats, and I went into him finally in 81, and I said, what do I know about music formats? I work at XRT. (laughs) And I said, I want to do a new class, History of Rock and Soul, and I want to reach media majors and radio majors and communications and all that stuff. I want to instill the passion for rock and soul and for them to know the history and know it's not just, it's not product. They called it that in the business, the product. And no, it's not product, it's art, (laughs) you know. And I wanted them to have that respect and also to learn it in a historical sense and how it was part of our societal change, you know. Life inspires music and music inspires life. It's a great relationship there. So I would every semester say we're going to have a semester-long frank discussion of race relations in America because if you don't understand our racial history, you don't understand American music. And not just black artists, but Johnny Cash, the Beatles, they were all connected and, and all did stuff too to say, hey, why isn't they... Why isn't that brother on TV instead of this guy? You know, I spend an hour and a half. It's half of a class on gospel music because that was so much part of the civil rights movement. The staple singers came from that tradition and they did all those great songs, respect yourself and all the civil rights stuff. So I would do that and we've done that. But last year I was talking about Jim Crow laws because I'm old enough to remember Jim Crow because we'd go down to Florida to see my grandparents every other year or every year, every summer, and we'd stop and there'd be a colored and white restroom. And I remember having to ask my parents, like, what's that? <laughs> you know, and they told me, and I was shocked. And I tell my students, too, I said, I think Dr. King owed a debt to music and baseball because for a white kid living in a small town in Ohio and kind of off the grid, <laughs> uh, Roy Campanella was my hero from the Brooklyn Dodgers, and I could do a whole talk show on that one because <laughs> that's uh, his daughter and I are close friends. She ended up going to Elmhurst and we still correspond all the time. In fact, we were both broken hearted when the Cubs and Dodgers tanked at the last minute this year. But somebody like me, when I would read Roy Campanella's biography, which I did in fifth grade, and this is my favorite ball player, and I find out what he went through, I was shocked. And that that wakes you up. That's woke, you know, <laughs> woke's not a bad thing. And so, and same with music. When I found out, you know, how my favorite musicians were treated, it made me angry. And so last year we were talking about something early in the semester. And I finally said, I'll never get a job teaching in Florida. <laughs> and the <laughs> kids just exploded. So now I did it every week and they were waiting for it. And, and now this semester, I still, every, at some point we'll be talking about, how horrible it was, but also how the arts helped move us to a better place. And that's why when they take away courses like that, it freaks me out because I minored in black studies the last two years at Elmhurst because they started offering it. And it was amazing, all different disciplines. And it it was life-changing. And you don't go to college just to learn rote stuff. You learn to be inspired and learn to question and learn to how to think and how to make you a more keep, well-rounded person. Yes. And to keep you going that you want to learn the rest of your life as a teacher. I say, if I don't learn, I, I should retire because I'm not doing it right. I learn from my kids and, and that's the truth. I learned all kinds of stuff and they challenged me. Boy, do they ever sometimes. And, and I grow and learn from that and I never give up on them.
going back to that that comment that Jim Stagg made to you at the very beginning of your career, mm-hmm. you don't know the value that one sentence could have yeah. on somebody else's life. Right. You, you just don't know. And, and there there could be a moment in, in your life or in, in, your, in your time as a teacher where you go, well, this was just an average day. But for one of your students, that was the day everything changed. Yes. And, um, and I'm really well aware of that. And, and I had the most memorable drag, <laughs> I mean, we almost came to fisticuffs, was with a woman who was just giving me bad attitude all semester. Um, and she was on her way to flunking because she wasn't reading the book. She was flunking the quizzes. She was obstinate. She was interrupting all the time. She, horrible attitude. She's bringing the whole class down. It's like putting the wrong ingredient in that soup. It just ruins it. And finally, I called for a, you know, one-to-one action. And, and she was an African-American student, and she thought I wasn't qualified to teach about black music. Like, what, who am I, you know? And so we had a knockdown drag out. It was a yelling match at first. And finally, I just, I said, you are your own worst enemy. You're going to fire this class, and you're going to tell everybody I'm racist. And I said, that's BS because... I'm here to teach and to help. There's no other reason. It's not for the money or anything else. It's just that I, I, I know I can do this and I want to do it. And I, and I want to learn from them too and get to know them. And, uh, she, uh, she was born again. And I said, Jesus loves me too. So get over yourself. And she was like, <laughs> so I said, I'm going to give you a choice. I said, cause you're going to go the rest of your life and you, you go with this attitude, you'll get fired, not because you're black, but because well, I won't say the word I used, but I got her attention with it. But uh, I said, you know, and if you don't know who your allies are, you aren't street smart. Who's there some people on your side that you're just, you know. Anyway, I said, think about it and tell me because I want you to drop out if you aren't serious about this class because you're ruining it. You're interrupting me. You're being rude. And it's it's dragging the whole because, you know, you get one kid like that, ruin the class. So I said, let me know. So she wrote to me that night and said, thanks for giving me another chance. I, I want to prove to you I can do this. It was like halfway through the semester. She still could save her grade. And she said, and by the way, I never had a white person tell, talk to me like that before. And I said, what, tell you the truth? And she said, yeah. And she turned out to be one of my best students. And, and another African-American student came up and said, what did you do to her? You're starting to scare me because uh, <laughs> she was you know, bitching all the time about it. I don't know why you like that white teacher, blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, that's the best teacher I ever had in my life. And, but, and she goes, I'm kind of scared, but you know, I don't know what you did, but we ended up being friends even after she graduated. And, uh, she, and her husband took me out for a soul food dinner after she graduated. And I took them to classic encounter at the symphony. They'd never heard classical music live. And we had a great evening. And the last time I saw them, they brought their baby down to Columbia and said, this is your Aunt Terry, you know. Oh. And then she said, uh, and I bought the baby uh, some Mozart CDs because I read that it's good for kids. And I said, you spent your money on music by dead white European men. You're an educated woman now. <laughs> You're open to everything. And, and I was scared. And, and there are times I've confronted kids and haven't, it hasn't worked. It's like a miracle when it does. And I'll keep you know, but I had a student last year that I said, we should talk because you're on your way to flunking. And it wasn't as inspirational as the other story. But she said, I think that I'm bored. The music is, I don't like the music. 
that's some great music, you know? And she said, and I don't like you. And I said, well, the good news is I don't care if you like me or not. <laughs> I want you to like the music because the music's going to be with you long after I'm gone. And she did pass the class. She turned it around and worked. In fact, my TA said, oh my gosh, she's like really, her whole vibe is different. And I said, leave no child left behind. You know, I don't give up on him. Before we wrap this up, I mean, looking back on your tenure, not only as a DJ at XRT, but also yeah. as a as an instructor at Columbia College, it sounds like the the through line for your career is you're an educator. Yeah. Whether it's on the radio or in the classroom. I'm my mother's daughter. My mom taught me that music changes lives. And she had a community chorus that really was a huge effect on me. And this is back in the 50s and 60s. And it was not only racially mixed, but the president of the bank was there, a farmer was there, people that could barely read music. Two people drove up from Dayton. They were in the Dayton Opera Chorus. And we did everything from show tunes to classical. We'd do some Bach. We'd do spirituals, you know, that they used to call Negro spirituals, you know. And, and in fact, there was one time this um, gentleman who was a butler for the house on the hill in Piqua, he stayed after, and he'd never call her Betty. He'd always Mrs. Hemmert. She said, call me. And he said, you know what that hem was, uh, listen to the lambs, hear them cry? She goes, no, what? You know, because you think lamb of God, or you think about the good shepherd that doesn't shut up down for the night till they find that last lamb. It was about, and this is what I teach in my class, is during slave days, they would come in with the wagons when the people were out working and they had some other slaves watching all the kids, you know, it's like daycare right out there on the field. And they would come unannounced and put some of the healthy, strong kids in the wagon and take them off to sell them. Now, how does a parent deal with that? They're out there, you know, working like crazy, hot, picking cotton, horrible, and their baby's taken away. And they know that they're going to have a horrible life. They aren't going to see them again. They aren't there to take care of them. It's a hostile world. And I can't even begin to imagine. They couldn't show anger. They couldn't talk to each other. They were spies, you know, where they lived. And, you know, they kept them down. And you couldn't go to therapy. The only outlet was going to church on Sunday and singing that gospel music. And that's why that gospel music is so deep. Uh, because it was their liberation music. And he told my mother this story, and she said, can I tell, or can you tell this? He said, no, I want that between you and me. But she told me, she said, and she waited decades to tell me the story, and she said, it affected the way I conducted. It, it took me at another level, and I got something out of you guys. And if you've ever done choral music and you have a really good director, you think, I can't believe I just did that. You know, I mean, it's amazing. And she said that that song meant so much more to her. And I tell that story in class. And and I said, the thing is, they had everything taken away from them coming over here and, and made them go to this church that wasn't even their spiritual traditions and all. But what they hadn't planned on is it was a a suffering savior. And they related to that. Somebody that had been whipped and scorned and spit on and hung up on a cross like people were hanging up people from trees, strange fruit, lynching, you know. And I said, that resonated. That was real. And they 
master didn't realize he was Pharaoh and all those gospel songs. And, uh, and then like here we have a great tradition, like with the staple singers and like Curtis Mayfield, uh, the stuff that he wrote and, uh, people get ready. There's a train a coming. That's right out of gospel. And it's a train to, not only to heaven, but it's a train to freedom. So maybe just maybe before we leave this earth, we can still have a good life. And there's that hope and that vision. And, 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 and I tell my students, remember that the civil rights movement came out of the pulpit. We call him Dr. Martin Luther King. He's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And so that all ties in together. And that's why that music is so powerful. I mean, I certainly, and my ancestors certainly didn't go through that, but it makes it, relatable and that's what the arts do if you see a play that's just brilliant and great acting it can really get under your skin and change you could you know could, could give you hope could challenge you music's the same thing and you never know at all i love it. i'm preparing for a class encounter thursday i was up this morning uh thinking how do i tie in gustav holst with star wars okay you know <laughs> and make it not dumb it down but make it relatable to the audience and prepare them for the the real deal. Terry Hammer, thank you very much. Thank you. This Thanks has been fun. This, this was a great conversation. Well, you knew your stuff, too. I tell you, you were coming out with things that nobody's ever asked. That's good. Well, you know, it's it's uh, years of absorbing weird radio trivia. Well, we're both radio nerds. You, it's you obvious. Could, it, 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 was, um, it was either this or yeah, what was something your, else. What was your backup career? Uh, I was going to be a, a, a train engineer. There you go. <laughs> a lot of good train songs. Yeah, there sure, yeah. certainly are. Before we end today's show, all of us at WBBM wanted to let you know about an upcoming event to support Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, a local Chicago charity focused on assisting young people who have faced life-threatening adversity. Mercy Home's Lux Gala will take place Saturday, November 18th at the Old Post Office downtown at 433 West Van Buren. And I was joined this week by Mercy Home's Director of Communications, Mark Schmelzer, to discuss Mercy Home's mission and to let you in on some of the incredible auction and raffle items available in an effort to sustain that mission. For listeners at home, let's tell people about Mercy Home, uh, what it is, uh, how long it's serviced the community, and and sort of what its overall goals are. And those obviously can change decade to decade. You guys have been running for a very long time. But let's give people the general 411 on Mercy Home. Well, Mercy Home has been serving this community for 136 years. We were founded in 1887. Uh, here on the near west side, we've expanded to a, a campus down on the far south side in the Beverly Morgan Park neighborhood. And we've been caring for young people who have experienced tremendous adversity in their lives, such as ne- abuse, neglect, uh, community violence, homelessness, and all sorts of struggles, and, and design a plan around how to um, get that young person not only the safety uh, now that, that they need, but also the tools and the uh, everything that they need to build uh, successful futures, such as a good education, job skills, uh, opportunities to have internships and um, after-school jobs and all kinds of support, um, with the idea that they could go on and become self-sustaining, contributing members of their communities. And of course, we also impart the value of giving back to the community, which so many do. And uh, that story is, is repeated so often. You know, it's a ripple effect. The, the people who donate and support Mercy Home, people like WBBM and so many of the other Odyssey stations as well, um, it has a ripple effect on the community because uh, we're able to help a, ch- a child in need and their families. 
and uh, when we help promote some healing uh, in, in that family and uh, in that child, they go on and then uh, impact their community in a very positive way. Well, I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't ask about some of these items that we're talking about, yeah. obviously, get people excited. Uh, raffle stuff, auctions. Um, what are some of the big ticket things that people can be in the running for either way, whether it's a live auction, yeah. silent auction, raffles? Well, I mean, something that leaps right off the page is Taylor Swift, right? So two tickets to a Taylor Swift uh, heiress tour show uh, under any other circumstances would be pretty incredible. But this includes uh, a show in Paris, France with a hotel suite and airfare. Uh, we have a six-day uh, gorilla trekking expedition in Uganda, which is also an amazing, um, uh, this is again, part of the live auction, uh, a week-long getaway to the Virgin Islands with a four-bedroom villa. But uh, one of the top silent auction items is a, a VIP tour of Virgin Galactic's gateway to space. And that is out in uh, the desert in uh, New Mexico. We have an Irish trip, but again, we'll have so many other items uh, from ranging from Hard to get sports memorabilia, jerseys, signed, autographed uh, photos and things like that, you know, jewelry and, and happening as it does at November 18th. This is a really good chance for people to go and get some of those very special, you know, holiday gifts that, uh, you know, that someone's special in their life. Right. So we're hoping that people will take advantage of that and, and use this event to uh, to do their shop for the holidays. Well, that's great. And this is really great for our WBBM family to, to hear. Uh, it's a tremendous event. Where can people go? to find out more about Mercy Home, to find out more about the gala, where do you guide them to? So our website is mercyhome.org, but specifically people can go to mercyhome.org slash Lux, that's L-U-X, where they could access all the information about bidding on the auction, which starts next Monday, by the way, people can do that online, even if they don't, if they don't intend to go to the event, they can bid on auction items online starting next Monday. Uh, the information again is there at mercyhome.org slash Lux. They can learn how to make arrangements for proxy bidding if they want to try to bid on some of these incredible items in the live auction and get their hands on the Taylor Swift tickets, for example. They could get raffle tickets um, from that page as well. Uh, we have a cash raffle prize of $25,000 with other prizes of seven and 7000 and 3000 So that is being sold right now, and they can get that uh, information on that same page. Uh, and really, everything else that they need to know about the event is at mercyhome.org slash lux. Uh, but the home itself, you know, please follow us on social. We're, we're on all the channels and of course, mercyhome.org, where we have a lot of stories about our, about our work. Uh, we certainly invite people to get to know us and get involved, if not in Lux and in some other way. We, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for people to refer children who may, uh, and families who may need our services. And of course, we're also looking for uh, people who may want to make their career here at Mercy Home. Okay, so people who uh, want to work directly in the care of our kids and in other uh, areas around the home as well. So all those opportunities are explained uh, in great detail on our website, mercyhome.org. And uh, I hope you I hope your listeners uh, check it out. Well, fantastic. This has been great to share this information with them. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time today. This is this is great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted by me, Jim Hankey, and moderated by Rob Hart, with additional recording by Chris Lopez. WBBM's news director is Craig Schwalb, and Myron Kaplan is our managing producer of national news podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media at WBBM Radio and at WBBM Podcasts for visual content in relation to our episodes. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts, where we'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you then.